welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, good morning again. Good morning to those who are joining us online. Uh, today being January 1st, I, I felt God saying that we were going to take a, a short break today from our, our study through 2 Corinthians. Uh, and this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a passage in John chapter 12, verses 20 to 26. So if you got your Bibles with you, either on your phone or on your person, then uh, you can go ahead and turn to it right now just so it's, you're ready for it. But, but one of the things that... Um, I think it's the hardest skill or hardest, uh, uh, I don't know, trait or, or ability to develop within the Christian life is learning to discern our Heavenly Father's voice, learning to discern how Jesus is speaking to you and, and how he's leading you. And I, I remember as a kid, uh, really struggling over that, never really quite sure, feeling very confident as to when he was speaking to me and did I actually understand what he was saying. And, and it was something that I, I had to develop. Uh, and and that's still, I'm still developing it. It's never something that I think you, you fully master. But one of the things that I've learned is that in hindsight, I've discovered that he was speaking to me far more than I was aware of, far more than I realized. Uh, for example, when, uh, when I was getting ready to, to, to study uh, engineering, um, when you're finishing up what was OAC or used to be grade 13, you would apply to a number of different schools. And so you could apply to three different schools. So I applied to University of Waterloo, uh, University of Toronto, and I think it was University of Western. You needed one you could definitely get into. And so I applied to those three. And you heard it. Uh, and that was the intent behind it too. So, so I applied to those three and I wanted to go to Waterloo, but I didn't get into the program that I wanted to. Uh, I got in at, at Toronto and, of course, Western, because they'll take anywhere. So, so I got in, not into the one I wanted, and, and I was disappointed because I wanted to go to Waterloo. Uh, and I remember I called them up afterwards and said, well, can I, can I take the program you've offered me and then transfer? And they said, well, you can, but don't do it because no one is really able to transfer. But there was something inside of me saying, go to Waterloo. And it was the easiest decision. There was no fretting, no worry, no, no concern over it. It was like, okay. That's what I'm going to do. So I, I accepted the program that I didn't want, but took it for a year and was able to transfer over afterwards. But in hindsight now, I can see how that was, that was Jesus, who was leading me to make sure that I was going to attend school at the University of Waterloo. And the reason was because of the, the people and the experiences that I was going to have while studying here, which would ultimately lead me to understand now the new covenant, understand the life of Jesus and his love and his grace. And it was because I followed that path of going to University of Waterloo. But again, it wasn't, it wasn't something that I heard, you know, a deep voice sounding like James, James Earl Jones. I didn't see writing on the wall. You know, there's no sheep or talking donkeys or anything like that. But there was something inside of me saying, go here. And I followed that. And again, in hindsight now, I've been discerning and dis discovering that was God's voice the whole time. And so it's important that we understand how do we discern God's voice? How do we learn that? Because it's going to impact the choices we make. And the reality is we, we make countless choices throughout the day. Some are really big, some are really small, but we're constantly making these choices. But these, these choices we make are not, they're not random. And what I mean by that is that they're not just, oh, you happen to choose this, you happen to choose that. There are things happening behind the scenes that we're not aware of. See, if they were purely random, that would be sort of living your life as if you were flipping a coin for every decision or rolling some dice. And as Christians, we don't do that because that's too close to gambling. And of course, we don't do any of that stuff. And, and so that would be a random choices. But we don't live that way. There are things happening. We're just not aware of it because it's, it's happening so far deep in the background that we're often not even aware of the factors that go into the choices that we're making. But it's there. It's there nonetheless. And so that's what we kind of want to do this morning is we want to kind of peel back the layer a little bit and see what's happening under the hood. What are the factors that go into influencing the choices that we make? Because especially those big choices, they are motive-driven. What I mean by that is there is a motive, there's something that, we're, that led us to choose this particular path, to choose this option over another option, 
because it's going to influence the decisions or influence the outcome that we want to see happen. Right? So again, some decisions are small, like do I watch, do I have another snack? Do I watch another episode? And others are larger, right? Do I marry this person? Do I date this person? Do I study this field? Do I go to school here? Do I take this job? And so forth. There's a lot of decisions that we go, that go into that. But there's really, I think, three major elements that go into the decision. And, and the first element is, and we're going to look at these in more detail, but the first one is, where will I find my life? Where or who will I find my life from? Or some call it your security. The second one is, is what we're trusting in to be our guidance and our wisdom. What do we understand? What do we believe about things? And then finally, what is the power I have that will allow me to fulfill that desire or that dream to find that life? So where do I think my life is? What's my source of wisdom and guidance? And what's my source of power? All of those three. So let's explain those in more detail. So the first one is, is where do I find my life from? So let's, let's understand this term life. Because I think we, we can just, you might hear that word life and just think, oh, physical life, whether I live or die physically. And that's not what I'm speaking about. Because the Bible talks about life really in a central way. Life and death, I think, is the central issue facing humanity ever since the garden. There was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge, good and evil, that God promised if they ate would result in what? Death. And, and if you think about it, the, the world that is still lost today, what are they struggling with? Death. That's what they're experiencing. That's why Jesus says, I have come that they might have life because that's what he's offering this world. So life and death are so critical, but clearly he's not offering them physical life because they already had that. So what does he mean by life? What is the life that he's offering to us? Well, I think it's the deepest, most important, fundamental needs of every single person. Think about it, that, that need to be loved, that, that need to belong somewhere. That, that need to be approved, to be accepted, to know that you're, you're, you, you, you fit in there, that you have value, that you have significance, and for all of that to be secure, meaning it won't just disappear overnight, it won't vanish on you, you can't fumble it away. You are fully loved unconditionally. You are fully accepted, fully belong, fully safe, right? It, it can't come and go like the sun on a cloudy day. It has to be there all the time. That's life for us. And, and every one of us, we're looking for that. And, and it's common to humanity. It's, it's what makes you and I human, in fact. I mean, think about it. Do you, do you think when your dog's sitting there lying on the floor, he's pondering, am I really loved? Or, or the horse in the field just kind of trotting around going, do I really belong in this field or should I be in that field? They don't care. They're not thinking about that sort of thing. But guess what we are? We're thinking about that all the time. Am I really safe here? Am I really loved here? Am I really okay? And, and it's so fundamental to us that one author, he likes the term, rather than life, he uses the term security because it's so central to our basic needs that it, without it, you're vulnerable. Without it, you're in trouble. Without it, you're in deep danger. So that's the first thing we need. Where is gonna be my life coming from? What's the source of that life? And the next, we said, we have our guidance and our wisdom. And, and put simply, this is based on what we think will be the best path or the best source to find that life, to find that fulfillment of security. And, and so most importantly, it, it begins with your perception, and note the key word, your perception, what you think about yourself. Not what's true about yourself, but what you think, what you perceive about yourself and, and about other people as well. And often even how you fit in with other people. So if you have a very low view of yourself and a very high view of other people, that's going to now influence your perception of how you're going to interact with people or vice versa. Maybe you have a very high value of yourself and a very low value of other people. That's going to impact your perception and how you interact with other people. And so all of this is sort of going in there in terms of how what you believe. But also it's now how, what you believe about how the world functions, about how the world operates, and even what is, what is acceptable and what is right and what is moral and what is unacceptable and what is not right and what is not moral, most importantly, even for you. So what are the lines that you will cross and not cross? Is it okay to, to, to kind of cross this line here that is not acceptable to the world, but it's okay for you because 
it's going to satisfy what you're looking for. So all that there is in that, that wisdom, that guidance in those beliefs aspect. And so the third one then is the power you have. And, and the power, simply put, is the capability that you possess to carry out the wisdom and the guidance to find the life that you're looking for. So what ability do you have, what capacity do you have to make what you want to see happen, happen? That's the power of it. And, and it's different maybe from what you believe to be your power. For example, you might believe that you have no power, that you have no ability, in which case you won't even try and you'll give up. Or maybe you believe that you have more power than you really have, in which case you will overpromise. You will bite off more than you can chew. And so the belief part, that's gonna be part of that more, that, that wisdom and the guidance aspect, but the power is the actual ability, the actual capability or capacity that you have to make what you want real. Does that make sense? So there's, a, there's the factors going on there. There's that life, there's the wisdom and the, and the guidance, and then the power that I possess to make it happen. Now, one, one famous author, Stephen Covey, he likes to say this. He says, whatever is at the center of our life will be the source of our security or our life, our guidance, our wisdom, and our power. So even below those three things is there's something at the center of all that. That, that center piece is what is it that you're fixated on? What is it that you're looking onto? Where are you turned to? that centerpiece is going to then influence life, wisdom, guidance, and power. So that center is, is what's so important there. And so the center is what, what or who you believe will provide all that, provide the life, provide the wisdom and the guidance, and provide the, the power. And there's a lot of different possible centers that are out there, a lot of different centers that maybe you have been, been looking towards, and maybe it's some combination. To be honest, that's, that's probably what it is, that we have a combination of things that we're looking to. But there's some common ones that I kind of want to break down for us that maybe we could listen to and go, oh, you know what? That's, that sort of describes what I'm dealing with, what I'm going through. So the first possible center might be people-centered. And here it's all about really, what do other people think about me? What are they, what is their perception of me? What often happens to the extreme is they become maybe people pleasers or maybe they want to become social media influencers where it's all about the fame. It's all about the perception of what others think about them because that's where they're going to find life from. They're going to find their value and their significance in that attention, in that sense of fame, in that sense of other people like me, other people appreciate me, that, that I'm a somebody if they want to be with me. I'm a somebody if they approve me. I'm a somebody even if they're jealous of me because that means that I'm important or they're envious of me in some way. And so you're finding your worth, you're finding that value based on everyone around you. And that's where you're gonna get your life from. What do they think of me? And so now the guidance and the wisdom that you're gonna lean upon is really gonna be around what do I need to do or if I do this, how will it influence other people? What will they say about me if I say this? If I dress this way, will they like it or not? If I act this way, will I still be okay? If I listen to this music, am I loved and accepted or not? Right, so there's all kinds of, of decisions that are being made that are really centered on what will be the perception of other people. And so then the power then becomes, again, your own abilities. Maybe it's your looks. Maybe, maybe it's your money and your attempt to kind of buy that affection, buy that love. Or, or maybe it's even the sacrifices you will make for other people in the sense that you will, you will sacrifice your time. You will sacrifice your own well-being. You'll maybe even sacrifice your friends in order to be a better friend to those people because you don't want to let them down. You want to make sure that they love you. You want to make sure that you're not a disappointment to them. Right? So there's that, that people-centered, where you're very much fixated on other people. Uh, then there's the, the pleasure center. And, and the pleasure center is it's all about just feeling good. Right, So ultimately here, you're chasing a particular set of feelings. Feeling happy, feeling light, feeling joy, which is, is wonderful, but that's not a real, true human experience. The reality is we're meant to experience all those emotions. But that pleasure-centered is making all their decisions based on what they're feeling. And so that's life to them. If I'm, if I'm feeling happy, if 
I'm feeling joyful, if I'm feeling excited, if I'm laughing, then I'm okay. And that's what I'm gonna try to chase after. That's what I'm gonna try to, to hold on to. But the reality is to chase those kind of feelings is sort of like hurting cats. It's not very successful because it's, it's hard to control that. And so what ends up happening now is the guidance and the wisdom is gonna be based on what will give me the most pleasure. You can already begin to see that some of that selfishness or even self-centeredness where it's about my pleasure, what's gonna cost me the less but give me the best reward, the best bang for my buck. And so you're evaluating each situation in that way. If I go to this party, I'll have these people and these people are fun, so I'll have a good time. If I go to this party, it's a little quieter, uh, it might be a little awkward, I'm not gonna do that. And so you're making those decisions based on what will make you feel good about yourself. And then the power behind that is simply your own ability. Your own ability to experience the joy, experience the fun times, and avoid pain, avoid drudgery, even avoid responsibility as best you can. And so really, this kind of a person that's very much pleasure-centered is sort of like Peter Pan. They never wanna grow up, right? They just wanna live, have a fun time, party with the lost boys, not not worry about responsibility, don't worry about paying the bills or any of those things, just have a good time. That's what they're after. So even though they're 49, they're living like they're 19. That's that pleasure center mentality. All right, the next one is the money center. And this is where, where your whole worth, your whole life, even your security is wrapped up in your balance sheet, in your bank account, right? And so it's, it's primarily money, but it even could include possessions, right? Where it's, it's just very materialistic where your significance is based on how much money you possess, how much money you have. And so now the guidance and the wisdom that you're gonna offer or or operate from is gonna be based on, well, what will give me the biggest profit? What will allow me to, to buy the boat? What will allow me to have the bigger home? What will allow me to have more money in the bank account and, and the larger RRSPs so that I know that I'll be okay? So that if I am in trouble, I've got enough money to bail myself out of everything. And so that money now becomes your hope. That money becomes security. That money becomes your your worth and your significance and even your love. And so the power behind it now is your ability to make profit, your ability to execute your vision, your ability to make money. That's your power and your own ability. And sometimes now you're even willing to cheat other people in order for you to be okay. Because again, it's about the money. And, and it's all about that. That's the final destination. That's the only thing that matters is how much money I have in the account and how I got there is secondary because the ends justify the means in this. The next one I want to look at is the spouse or the family center. And, and so whereas people center might be other, other friends or other people even, just people you might be serving and ministering to, this one here is very much in within your own family, your own core group. So maybe it's your maybe it's your siblings and your parents, or maybe it's your own children and stuff. But it's it's your spouse, but it's very tight knit, this close family, and it's really based on now your value and your worth is on how they treat you. How are they are they loving to you? Do they care for you? Do they think about you? Are they are they giving you worth and significance, or are they mistreating you? Are they rejecting you? Are they are they mean to you? And 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 basically, what do they think of you? that becomes very hyper-focused in the spouse or family-centered mindset. And so now the guidance and wisdom is simply based on how do I please these people? How do I give them what they want where they will give me what I want? How do I love them in order to get love back from them? And so the power now is my ability to meet their needs, my ability to serve them, or even my ability to manipulate doesn't sound so good anymore, does it? But that's really what's happening here is it's it's a toxic kind of love because it's love with a hook on it. I'll love you if you love me back. I'll, I'll offer you acceptance, but I expect acceptance back. And so I'm gonna now manipulate you in a way that I get my love and my acceptance from you. And the extreme examples of this is, is now the person becomes codependent where often you see this with with parent and children, where they're unwilling to let their children grow up. They're unwilling to to watch their children go and and live their own lives because then they don't know who they are. They don't know their significance anymore. 
And so you, you would see this a lot with, with moms and their sons, right? The son is everything to the mom, right? And the son loves it. He's a mama's boy and, and everyone's happy because seemingly mom loves son, son loves mom, mom feels good about herself. But son, son grows up, son meets pretty girl. Son dates pretty girl, son marries pretty girl. Where's mom now? She becomes the other woman, right? At one point, she was the apple of her son's eye. She was the one that son ran to. But now son runs to wife. And mom doesn't feel so good anymore. Now I don't know who I am. And so often you would see mother-in-laws fighting with daughter-in-laws, battling with each other trying to fight for the affection of the son because that's where they got their significance from. And now that it's gone, who am I? And so that power then becomes, how do I manipulate and control this person to meet my needs? Doesn't sound good, does it? So another possible center is work. And this work could even include volunteer work. So it might be your career, it might be your job, but it might even be a ministry. Might be the volunteer hours you're putting in at, at somewhere like the pregnancy center or here at church and, and serving other people. It's that, what are we putting our, our effort towards? What are we working with and working towards? And here, you're finding your significance based on what you do, based on how you're able to serve someone. And so the wisdom and the guidance is really based on that if I have the right title, if I do the right things, then I'm gonna be significant. And so I study really, really hard and I graduate, and now I can tell everyone I'm a doctor. I, I heard one, one man who was a doctor, and someone said, oh, Mr. Johnson, and he cut him off, and he said, I didn't go to seven years to medical school to be called Mr. I'm a doctor. Oh, sorry, Dr. Johnson. And for him, that was everything, because the prestige, the, the importance, the significance that comes with being a doctor, MD, or PhD, or all the letters that people put after their name, they're trying to find value and significance in those things. Or, or maybe I am a business owner. I own a business. I, no one's my boss, I'm my own boss. Or maybe I'm a pastor. And we can find significance based on our titles more than anything else and what we're doing. And so this idea then is if I serve well, if I work hard enough, then I'll be okay. And so my guidance and wisdom is based on what will make me successful in my area. What will make me successful in my job? What will get me promoted? What will get me recognized? What will get the most approval from those people that I'm serving in? And then the power, again, is my own ability, my own, my own power I have in my body to make the sacrifices, to work hard, uh, to maybe even sacrificing other re uh, relationships in order that I might have the highest degree of success, that the business would be successful that I would be recognized and awarded in my field or, or other people would need me. Now I'm important. Now I'm significant. Well, there's, there's one more we want to look at this morning. And hopefully you're beginning to see that maybe not to full degrees, but maybe some degrees you're seeing yourself in these, these centers. But the last one I want to look at is, is a common one, which is being trapped in this past hurt or grievance center. Here, here, your past hurt and your grievances, how others have treated you, how they've hurt you, the rejection, the bitterness that you feel as a result, that becomes your center. And in a very twisted way, you find your significance from that. Because that, that hurt, you can nurse, you can use to, to find significance and value. I, I knew of uh, one lady where uh, she was really struggling in life. And in a legitimate way, she was struggling. And she, she told everyone that she's done. She wants to kill herself. She's going to commit suicide. Well, that, that happened, and everyone around her came rushing to her side, and they tell her they loved her, that she's important. Don't do it. She's significant, which is what they should do. And for a moment, she felt that attention. She goes, ah, oh, that feels good. But inevitably, what happens? People go back to their lives and they go back to what they were doing before. And that hurt was never addressed. That, that bitterness and that rejection was never addressed. So it's still there. And so now the attention's gone. And guess what? I don't feel so good anymore. So she threatened suicide again. 
Everyone comes around, we love you, don't do it, you're important, and she feels good now. Well, she quickly learned that if she could threaten suicide, she could get that attention she wanted. And so she's using that pain as a way to control and manipulate everyone around her. It's a twisted way, but we see it over and over again. This, this victim mentality, this victim currency, this victimhood culture that people use, where they don't actually want to solve the grievance. They simply want to use the grievance to get what they're looking for. We see this politically even. And so this guidance and wisdom then is based around this idea. I myself don't have the ability to change. I myself don't have the ability to overcome this, this struggle. That the trauma that I've experienced has left me forever broken, forever hurt, forever damaged. And so now I need you to rescue me. I need someone else to come along and solve all my problems because I can't. Because the power that they believe they have is really no power. But in reality, the power they have is the ability to manipulate everyone else to give them the attention they're looking for. Does that make sense? Again, all kinds of different centers. There's even more than we haven't talked about, but I think these are the most common ones. And, and maybe you can see two or three in your own life that you at times would go to, at times would begin to fixate your eyes on. And, and I say that because the Bible's filled with examples of these centers. It's filled with examples of stories of people who, who've made all these different things their center. For example, that people center. Many of the Pharisees were this way. Right? The Pharisees were all about the show. So they would pray in a very loud, elegant way, and they would boast about their works because they wanted everyone else around them to notice them. And so it looked good, right? In Jesus' own estimation, he said, you guys look good. You're whitewashed, clean on the outside. Everything's looking wonderful, but your tombs, you're dead on the inside. But that's these Pharisees. They were only worried about what the, how will I be perceived? What will people think about me? Peter was like this, right? I mean, remember, even after, after the cross, that was what Paul was talking about in Galatians chapter two, how Peter used to sit with the Gentiles and he was enjoying some BLT sandwiches and hot dogs and sausages and he'd come to the light. I mean, it was beautiful and he was having a great time with these Gentiles until some law-abiding Jews came, some Judaizers. And suddenly Peter's like, oh, if I sit with the Gentiles, they're gonna reject me. But if I sit with the Judaizers, then the Gentiles probably won't know. So I'm just going to turn my back on them so I can gain these people's acceptance and approval. He was still worried. He was still wrapped up in what do other people think of me? But maybe, the, maybe one of the greatest examples of this is King Saul. King Saul is a, is a tragic story, a tragic tale of really of what it means when you, when you get off track and you start looking to all the wrong places. But we, we read about the, his, his great fall from grace, so to speak. I think it's in 1 Samuel 14, his disobedience, where he, he failed to deliver on what God asked him to do. And when he was confronted by the prophet Samuel about it, what's telling is his response. He didn't say, I'm really sorry. How do we make it right? What do we need to do? His great fear was, make sure you come with me and you stand beside me because I'm worried about what Israel will think of me if you don't. He didn't care about his disobedience. He didn't care about the damage of, of his sin. All he was worried about is make sure that I still look good in this. How can we spin it so no one needs to know? That's what he was worried about. He just wanted to look bad in front of other people. So there's that people center throughout the scripture. There's, there's the pleasure center. I mean, Jesus at one point had thousands of followers, right? I mean, think about it. When he fed the 5,000, 5,000 men, by the way, which some scholars would say was probably between 20 and 40,000 people there that he fed with just five loaves and two fish. So we had thousands of people following him in John chapter five. But John chapter six now, it was decimated to tens of people now. And he lost a lot of people because now that, that free fun ride was gone because they were only following Jesus because of the miracles and the free food. And then I bet you it was really good fish and bread, right? I mean, it was probably the best. And that's what they're after. But then when now the challenge became too much, when the cost to them became too much, it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth to follow this Jesus character anymore. I'm going to go look for my pleasure somewhere else. And so they didn't really want Jesus. 
They merely wanted what Jesus could offer them. Jesus was a means to an end, not the end itself. You've got the the money center people, rich young ruler being at the the forefront of this, comes to Jesus and what must I do to have eternal life? I mean, that's a softball question, right? The, The question we all want in order to share our faith and evangelize. And Jesus says, well, you gotta give up all your money. And it says that he was a very rich man and he couldn't do it. And so he went away sad. He was unwilling to part from his money because for him, his money was what gave him worth. That's what made him the rich young ruler. That's what gave him security. That's what gave him power and and significance and value. That was it. And to lose that, well, who would I be then? Where would I find that significance? Where would I find that life that I'm looking for? But maybe another example of this is Nabal. 1 Samuel 25, David is is living on the border of of Israel and and, uh, the Philistines, and he's on the run from King Saul. And while he's there, though, he's and his merry men are protecting all the border towns, all the border farms, because the Philistines would often cross the border, raid those farms, and then take off, which meant that you would lose about half your crops every year if you lived on those border towns. That was until King David and his merry men showed up. And now they're the local security. They have a local militia, a local army protecting them. And now they're having a bumper year because instead of losing half their crops, they got all their crops. So David sends his men, a couple of his guys, go ask Nabal for a little food to feed the army that's protecting him. And Nabal says, I don't know this David character you speak of, which he does. Clearly everyone in Israel knows who David is. He's the most wanted man, but he's pretending not to know him simply because he doesn't want to part from his wealth. He doesn't want to lose out on what he's holding on to. And interesting enough, Nabal means fool because he lived that way because that money was so central to him. You have the spouse of the family center. I think a great example of this is that woman at the well. Remember the woman at the well in John chapter four who had five husbands and was constantly being divorced one after another? I'm pretty sure it was divorced and not widowed because if you're widowed after like a third husband, number four has got to be asking questions right? And, and so I'm pretty sure she was divorced five times, which had been great shame, incredible shame for her in that culture. And now she's even living with her, her boyfriend, not even needing to be, to be married because she's so desperate for that love. If a man loves me, I'll be okay. If a man thinks I'm significant, I'll be all right. And that's why she was so desperately going from man to man to man to man to find that worth. It was based on her family. Or you have that work center mentality. And again, a great example, of that is Martha. Luke chapter 10, right? The story where Mary and Martha are hosting Jesus and Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him. And where's Martha? In the kitchen, working, angry, bitter towards Mary, jealous of Mary, wondering why Jesus won't tell Mary to go help Martha because she's so, so wrapped up in serving, so wrapped up in working. And then we have that past hurts and victim mentality. And a couple examples, one is Jonah. I mean, even the prophet Jonah, when God asked him to go and preach the gospel to Nineveh, the reason he didn't want to go to Nineveh is because he knew what God was gonna do. He knew God's grace would work. He knew that they would come to salvation and he didn't want that to happen because he was angry at that city. Nineveh was was notorious for raiding Israel and causing damage. And Jonah likely would have suffered under that. And so his hurt and his pain didn't allow him to go and at first share the gospel with them. And even when he did finally go, he did the the least amount of effort, hoping that God's wrath would still come upon them. And so when he's sitting on that hilltop, waiting for God to strike lightning and, and sulfur and hailstone and you know, Diet Pepsi on them, and he's waiting for that. He's angry when he doesn't see it happen because he wanted them to suffer. He's living out of that grievance center. Or you have Absalom, one of the sons of David, who's angry at his father, angry at his brothers for what happened to his sister, just angry at everyone, leads to a rebellion, which ultimately leads to his own death because he was operating out of that victim mentality. Then you have in John chapter five, the the man who was was lame for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda. In his mind, he wasn't healed because no one would help him. 
So when Jesus says, do you want to be well? He's asking the question, do you want to be well? Because if you are, you, you can't live this way anymore. You can't live in the victim mentality. If you're not lame, you're going to have to work. You can't live off the begging and the scraps of other people now. You're going to have to take on responsibility. Do you want to be well? And that's the question for everyone in that victim mentality is, do you actually want to be well or are you more comfortable in that grievance and in that victim mentality? For a lot of people, they are because it's working for them. That's what gives them power. And so again, Scripture is filled with all kinds of examples and, and characters for us to learn from and see how did their lives turn out. And clearly, not, not, not one of them works out for them, which now leads us to our passage this morning. So turn in your, in your Bible now to, to John chapter 12. And, and you're going to see here, we've, we've seen all those alternative, those other centers are inadequate but Jesus is offering us something better. So beginning in verse 20, it says, now there were some Greeks or Gentiles among those who were going up to worship at the feast. The feast here is the Passover. In fact, this is the weekend of Jesus' death. And he's arrived in Jerusalem. And, and not only are the Jews going there, but there are some Greeks who also believe in God that are a part of the journey. Then these, these Greeks, these Gentiles, they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, sir... We wish to see Jesus. Philip came, told Andrew. Andrew told Philip. Philip came and told Jesus. By that point, the answer was apple pie, right? Broken telephone, right? You can see the bureaucracy here, right? So Philip goes to Andrew, Andrew to Philip. Uh, Andrew and Philip, sorry, go to Jesus. And Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's talking about the cross. This is it. This is the weekend. It's happening right now. And then he says, truly, truly. Or verily, verily in the King James. Or I tell you the truth in the, in the new, in NIV version. Really, he's emphasizing. He's really, what he's saying is, listen up, pay attention. This is important. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, he remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. We'll trade it, we'll exchange it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Here's what he's saying. You, you, you Greeks, you Gentiles, even you Jews, who, whoever is coming to Jesus, we all come to Jesus with another center. Maybe it's that people center. Maybe it's that spouse family center. Maybe it's money center. Maybe it's an addiction even, right? Maybe it's our sin. That whatever it is, we're bringing that center, that thing that we're fixated on, that we're focused on, apart from Jesus, that we've been using to get life from. And it's not been great, but it's got us this far. And Jesus says, you have to let that go. You have to be willing for that to die. You have to be willing for that to disappear to not be your center. It doesn't mean you have to stop being a spouse or you have to stop working. It just means that can't be your center anymore. It can't be what defines you anymore. You have to be willing to let go of that grievance, that hurts, and let me be your center. Look to me. And, and the one who does that, the one who's willing to lose their center will find eternal life, will find me. And I can be your center. I can be that life to you. Because the reality is all these other centers, at best, they're like, they're like a mirage of an oasis in the desert. Right? I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I've thankfully never been lost in the desert long enough for that to happen. But you see it in, like, in movies and TV shows that that poor guy is just kind of dragging his feet through the desert and he looks up and he sees an oasis. Right? Palm trees. And, and, and a little waterfall and a little lake and green grass and, and sour cream and onion chips and Coke and all, you know, the, just it's perfect. It's paradise. And they think, wow, I just, I just need to get there. And so they, they start picking up their pace and they start moving quicker. And then when they finally get there, what do they discover? Nothing. It's gone. Because it was never really there. It was simply a mirage. And that's what these other centers are. They're like a mirage. They're offering you the hope. They're offering you the promise of life. 
but they can never deliver on it. Because by the time you get there, you realize there was nothing but sand. But when you look up, then there's another mirage. And so you chase that for a while. And then you discover it's only sand. Then you find another one and another one and another one and another one. And it never works. And so think about all the invitations that Jesus is making. If anyone's thirsty, come to me and I'll give you something to drink. Are you dead? Come to me because I'll offer you life. If, if you're hurting, come to me and I will bind you up and offer you healing. If you're alone, come to me and I'll offer you companionship and compassion and love. If you're rejected and abused and hurt, come to me and I'll protect you and I'll look after you. The invitation that Jesus is constantly making to you and I is to come to him so that he can be our center. And the great example of this, I think, is King David. David does such a great job of this. Turn in your Bibles to to Psalm 27 and verse 4. I think this is just such an important verse that I want you to read it in your own Bibles here, but this is the heart of David. Remember, David had a heart after God. And I think that's what it's describing here in Psalm 27, 4. David writes this, the one thing I've asked from the Lord, the one, the one thing I've asked that I shall seek, that I will pursue, that I will look for, that I will chase after, is that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. That's his heart's desire. His center is God. His center is Jesus. And he wants to pursue that. He wants to to chase after him. He wants to seek him and then sit and dwell in his beauty, dwell in his presence and meditate and speak with him and learn from him. He wants to make Jesus the center and the focus of all that. So what does that mean on a practical level? Well, let's, let's take a look at a couple of verses here, a couple of passages. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 23. And we're going to, again, learn from, from King David about his mentality. So again, David here in, in, in chapter 23, beginning verse 2, we're going to look at, he's, he's got some questions about whether, he's not, whether or not he should go after the Philistines or not. So in verse 2, it says, So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and deliver Kaliah, right? And then, and then jump down now to, uh, to verse 4. Then David inquired the Lord once more, and the Lord answered him, arise and go down to Kaliah, for I will give you the Philistines into your hand. Notice he's, he's inquiring of the Lord. And then in, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 19, jump over to there really quick. Again, we have in verse 19, David inquired of the Lord saying, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up for I shall surely give the Philistines into your hand. And then in verse 23, again, David inquired of the Lord. This time the Lord says, you shall not go directly up, circle around behind them and then you will come at them in front of the balsam trees, it shall be. So basically what he was doing is setting up an ambush. Don't go at them directly, go around them, come from the rear, they won't expect it. God's a pretty good military general here, right? So the the point being here is, is David isn't trying to figure it out himself. He goes and inquires the Lord, and then he has success. But notice this now. Let's go now to uh, to 1 Samuel again, chapter 27 and verse 1. Notice here it says, Then David said to himself, now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines where Saul won't chase after. So what's different here is notice he inquired the Lord. He inquired the Lord. He inquired the Lord. He inquired the Lord. But this time he said to himself, he became his own center. And now he had to protect himself. He had to be his security. And he's thinking, Saul's going to kill me. At some point, Saul's going to overrun me. So I got to get out of here. I know what I'll do. I'll run off and I'll live in the land of the Philistines because Saul won't chase me there. And so what he did, he went over, he crossed the border and he offered himself up now to the king of the Philistines, which meant he now served them. 
And if you read on into, into chapter 29, it talks about how the Philistines now went up against Israel and David now is on the side of the Philistines. He's at the back of the army. And now he's got a decision. I am my merry men because I've offered myself to this king. I'm about to go kill my own men, my own people, the people that I've been anointed to be the king of. And he got into that jam because he didn't inquire of the Lord. He inquired of himself. He had the wrong center in that moment. He was trying to protect himself. And so what we need to do is we need to learn, how do I let Jesus be that center? How do I inquire of him? Which again, leads us back to that question. Well, how do I discern his voice? Because I would love to talk to him. I have been talking to him. I just haven't heard from him. And I think you have. We just need to learn how he's speaking to us. And that that, that grows, that, that, that uh, signal, so to speak, becomes stronger and we recognize it more and more. But there's a great verse that I think helps us to understand it. So turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 17. And I think this is a great verse, particularly the last two lines of the verse. I think God's given us some wisdom and some understanding of how we can discern his voice. So in verse 17, he says, instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. Basically he's saying, what you think is here, I'm going to offer you something better. Iron is stronger than, than, than stones. Bronze is better than wood. Silver is better than iron. Gold is better than bronze. So he's, he's offering us the best. And he says, these last two lines, and I will make peace your governor and righteousness your ruler. Right, So this, this ruler, this governor is the one who's in charge, the one who's in command. And he says, I'm going to make peace and righteousness what leads you. And so when I'm faced with a decision, I, I try to look at it in these two senses or these two ways. Is this choice righteous? And do I have a peace about it? And both have to exist. I remember one time when I was, I was counseling, a lady comes into my office, sits down, and she says to me, uh, is it possible that God would lead, lead me to leave my husband so I could be with another man? I said, no. I said, well, the Bible says, well, I know what the Bible says, but is it possible that God would lead me? And the answer is no, because that would be an unrighteous choice. That would be an unrighteous act. So that thought may come and present itself as, you know, if you left your spouse and were with this person over here, you'd be much happier. They would look after you. They would love you. It'd be better. So do that but you're not listening to Jesus in that moment. You're simply focusing on your own pleasure, on your own selfishness, on other people, on that sense of what's going to give me life, but you're not focusing on Jesus because it's not righteous. So that's helpful, right? If it's, if it's an unrighteous act, we know that's not from God because God would never lead us towards sin, it says in James chapter one. But there's a lot of choices that are neither sinful or not sinful. Do I buy this car or that car? Do I take this job or that job? Do I buy this house or this house? Right? There isn't a righteousness attached to the decision. And here is where peace can be so helpful. Because God's going to lead us with that sense of peace. Do I have a confidence that this is the direction that we ought to go in? And so what I like to do is I, I like to try it on in my mind. I like to kind of imagine, what would it look like if I went down this path? What would it look like if, if, if this was the path I took? And I'm not looking for the positive outcomes, but something within my spirit that says, yeah, this is the way, walk in it. So what, what Isaiah talked about in terms of the Holy Spirit coming in, in Isaiah chapter, I think it's 15-ish, where he says that there'll be a voice in behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. And there's that sense of peace, that sense of confidence. That doesn't mean there's no anxiety, there's no, no nerves, no fear. I mean, Paul was in Corinth it, with fear and trembling, but he knew he was right where he was supposed to be because he had a deeper sense of confidence that this was the path that God was leading him on. And so that's what we can do. Sometimes maybe even take some steps along that direction, but checking in, God, is this still the right way? Is this where you want me to go? Because I'm following you on this. I'm trusting you on this. And if that peace grows, there's confirmation that you're going in the right, direct, right direction. And if that peace diminishes, that's God's way of saying wrong way to take a different path. But please understand, no one's got perfect discernment. God's not requiring you to have perfect discernment. All he's asking is, will you trust me? Will you put me at that center? Will you inquire of me? 
and take a step in the direction that you best believe is the direction I'm leading you. And if you get it wrong, you laugh together and he corrects you. And it's okay. But he's proud of you because you took a step of faith. He's proud of you because you trusted him in that moment. And that's all he's looking for from us. And so I pray that this, this year, maybe as you're setting up resolutions or setting up goals for this year, that you'll inquire of the Lord. God, what is it you have for me this year? What is it you have for my family? What is it you have for our church? What is it you have that you want me to be a part of? I'm inquiring of you because where you are, that's where I want to be. And I'm letting go of my life, letting go of what I thought was important, letting go of my dreams to embrace yours because there I'll find eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the fact and the truth that life is in you. Life is not in this, this world, it's not based on our own efforts, it's based in what you have to offer us. And so thank you, Jesus, that we can trust you. Thank you, Lord, that we can rely upon your strength and your power. And I pray, Lord, that as we inquire of you, you will teach us how to learn your voice. Just like Samuel had to learn your voice when you were calling him, we have to learn your voice as well. But may we, like Samuel, say, here I am, Lord, speak that we would follow you and that we would trust you. And we would see your life in us and we'd see your life through us and this world to be transformed by you. In your name we pray, amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.